We have a lot to cover. We're not going to read the first half of chapter 14, uh, but I need to summarize the story for you. Joab is the commander of David's army. Absalom is David's son. Absalom is living in exile because, if you remember last Sunday, he killed his brother Amnon. And after three years, Joab comes up with this plan to try to bring Absalom home. He tries to hide his intentions from David by involving this widow. But David sees through the plan and the widow confesses. She says in verse 20, In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. So David realizes it, and even so, David shows Joab mercy and allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem on one condition. The king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This was David's way of saying, you can come home, but we're not okay. It's also a way to limit Absalom's power. Most historians think that David has already announced Solomon to be his heir, to be the next king. And so that sets up the conflict that we're about to read. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, do you remember the last man in the Bible to be described in this way? It was King Saul. And that's important. I think the writer wants us to make that connection. And then in the next two verses, we learn that Absalom had this heavy, long, flowing hair. And it says that he had three sons and a beautiful daughter. And then the story takes this, this quickly, it takes a turn. And it says that Absalom, although he was a handsome man, the story basically tells us he was also a wicked man. He had a corrupt heart. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here. Then I may send you to the king to ask, 
Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he, that's David, summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now the irony in this chapter is how badly Joab's plans backfire. Remember what the widow said? She said, in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this, but Joab got more than he bargained for. Absalom proves himself to be a threat, not an ally. And I think there's a simple practical lesson for us in this. Very often we think that we know what's best and we try to make it happen, right? And very often our efforts to change the course of things only make things worse. Joab got involved in a conflict that he had nothing to do with. Listen to what Proverbs 26, 17 says. It says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. In other words, not a good idea. Which means Joab really should have stayed in his lane. And now the fox is in the hen house. Chapter 15, verse 1. This is my favorite verse, by the way. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, there's no record of Absalom actually fighting in a battle before this. So he's trying to look the part of a warrior. This is the ancient equivalent to a man driving a flashy, expensive vehicle only to be seen in it, right? Or in the south, this is the guy that that has the big truck with the mud tires and the mud flaps but never actually goes mudding, okay? This is, this is Absalom. Uh, verse 2. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Okay, so pause here. He's networking. You see this? Early to bed, early to rise. He's, he's networking. Everybody knew Absalom and Absalom knew everyone. Verse 3. Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man could come to me with a dispute or a cause, and I would give him justice. Notice he's telling every man that his claim is good and right, which cannot possibly be true, right? <laughs> everybody's, everybody's cause is not good and right. But it's easy to say what you would do if you had the power to do it, which to me, this sounds like almost every politician, right? 
If only I had the power to fix this. I would be on your side, right? And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This man was a smooth operator. He is a man on a mission. This is an ambitious man. And it's pretty obvious what he wanted. He wanted to be king. Verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city Gila. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The most wicked thing about Absalom's conspiracy is that he does all this under the pretense of false worship. Do you see that? He's using God to get what he wants. Even to the point that he's making false sacrifices. And I think there's another practical lesson in that, especially for modern pastors, ministry leaders, and it's this. Beware of any man who would use the church to gain power, money, or fame for himself. And you've got to realize in today's culture that is a constant temptation. Constant. But celebrity pastors really should not be a thing. And yet I want you to notice the fault here doesn't just lie with Absalom. Okay, yes, he's corrupt. He's wicked. He's using God. All of that is true. But the people were also to blame. They fell in love with this handsome devil. And our culture still does this, right? Our culture elevates charisma and success above everything else. We create famous people and then we worship them. And people were not created to be famous because we're not meant to be worshipped. 
We see this over and over again with celebrities, right? Watching the Kanye West thing, and it's just... It's amazing to me how easily fame corrupts people. You remember what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel was looking for the king to replace Saul? It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And far too often, what do we look at? We look at the appearance and we ignore character. And there are warning signs all over this story, right? Absalom has proven himself to be a man who would literally do anything to get what he wanted. He would wait patiently. He would act subversively. He would kill his own brother. He would set a man's field on fire. But the people saw what they wanted to see, right? Verse 13. The messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. And so the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. Now, the rest of chapter 15 tells us about some of the people who remained loyal to David. But there's one section that I want us to focus on, and this is the moment when David shows us his character. Okay, so in spite of David's many failures, and even what he's living through right now are the consequences of his sin, But in spite of that, David's heart is still focused on God. And I want you to see this. Verse 24. Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came up with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. But the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now, I want to suggest to you that this is an absolutely remarkable faith. Because from a human perspective, the odds are clearly in Absalom's favor. And now David is giving Absalom the ark. And the people of Israel are going to assume that Absalom has God's favor. They're going to assume that David is giving up and walking away. 
But David's not giving up. David clearly is leaving the entire situation up to God. He's not doing nothing. He's trusting God. David is basically leaving everything that comes with being a king behind except God. He's leaving it all. And he's clearly not afraid to lose it all. And that is remarkable to me. And it it actually gets worse. Watch what happens when they travel outside from the city. We're in chapter 16 now, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. (laughs) Seems reasonable. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. An interesting perspective. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Isn't that a remarkable story? I mean, the composure of David, the king, in this situation is astounding to me. David is saying to his men, I have nothing to prove. He just lets it happen and he just trusts that even this suffering is for a reason. God is letting this happen. And he's going to leave it all up to God to decide what he wants to do with David in his life. And so Absalom is back in Jerusalem trying to look the part of a king. David is in the wilderness again. And David is completely unconcerned with how he looks. He is literally letting a man throw dirt at him. And then they arrive at the Jordan River. The 
text says they refreshed themselves. In other words, they slept. And then David wrote Psalm 3 in this exact moment. And listen to what he says. Psalm 3, 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is not the self-confidence of an insane man. This is a man confident in his God. David went to sleep beside the Jordan River a king, and he woke up the next day a king because God was still on the throne. And it didn't matter that David looked defeated. It didn't matter that the devil thought he'd won. It did not matter that anyone else thought whatever they wanted to think about him. That he was probably covered in dirt and bruises from his journey because a man was literally throwing these things at him. I lay down and slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. And I want to be honest with you. I, I read this and I prepared for this and I've been uneasy with myself all week. Thinking to myself, I want this kind of confidence in my life. I want this kind of character. I want to be able to take whatever comes and just be like, yeah, God's got this. This is, I mean, I read this and I want this. I'm attracted to it. It's a beautiful thing. I don't want to be Absalom. But the truth is, when I look at myself in the mirror and I think about my own heart, I've still got a lot of Absalom inside me. I still care far too much about how other people see me. About how I look, about how I come across to people. And there's so much in my life that I am afraid to lose, if I'm honest. But the object of my faith is not my faith. The object of my faith is not my ability to be more like David and less like Absalom. That's not the point of this story. The object of my faith and the object of David's faith is God Himself. And in our case, we get to look back over the story and we know that really it's in specifically the greater David. And what I want to show you What's so beautiful about this story and every story that we've studied, but I just have to say it because I'm like, the Bible is just so amazing. This entire story is just completely rich with gospel narrative. It is today. It is going to be next Sunday. It's going to be the Sunday after that. But I want you to see this because we know that there was another king who marched out of Jerusalem enduring insults as he went. There was another king who allowed himself 
to look defeated when all he had to do was snap his fingers and all the Roman soldiers and Pilate and all the Jews' heads could be cut off immediately. And don't you know the angels were standing there? Yahweh let me do it. Let me smite these evil, wicked people who are cursing the Son of God. How dare they? And Jesus said no. He looked defeated. You know, David still had friends on his side. Jesus had none. Shammai said to David, Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Jesus willingly took evil on himself and became a man of blood for us. David's son sought to take his father's life. God the Father demanded the life of His only Son. And the Son of God surrendered His life freely. From the sole of His foot to the crown of His head, there was no blemish in Christ Jesus. The worship that Jesus Christ offered His Father was pure. The sacrifice was perfect. And He laid down His life. And He slept the dark sleep of death. And three days later, He woke again, for the Lord sustained Him. And many thousands who had set themselves against the King, including me, were saved. Fingerprints of God are all over this story. Brothers and sisters, I think the message is this. Anything we are afraid to lose is no loss compared to this Jesus. And as we come to this table... It's a small thing. Just a little piece of prefabricated bread and a thimble of grape juice. But it speaks volumes. We take it to remember the purity and the beauty of Christ's sacrifice for us, which was not deserved. In the story, we're the enemies of God. We're the ones surrounding the king and hurling insults and throwing dirt. We who are made of dirt. And He invites us to come and enter into His life, death, and resurrection visibly signifying that we are taking into ourselves something pure that we do not deserve. Not earned by us. 
We take it in faith, but as I said, our faith is not the object of our faith. What this table represents is the object of our faith. And so I invite you to come this morning um, and take and eat and drink. And it's kind of a it's kind of a weird feeling if you're Christian, you know, it's like both mourning and joy at the same time, right? Because you're like you're you're accepting the fact that like I have nothing to offer in exchange for this grace. And though you want to just burst at the seams with joy, at the same time, you're so humbled by it and so struck by the brutality of the cross. It's just a beautiful thing. And you're invited to this table if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you profess that publicly. If you have not done so, then please don't come. Nobody's going to judge you for that. We would invite you to consider placing... Uh, publicly your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we can make that happen. Um, But in the meantime, wait. If you have young children who have not yet professed their faith, this is a great time to discuss it with them, but they also should not take the supper. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this gift. We thank You for the gift of Your life. You do not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became a servant, humbled yourself even to death on a cross. As we celebrate this supper, we do so in faith, trusting that it will be a means of grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and offered thanks. and He broke it, offered it to His disciples and said, This is my body which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup represents the forgiveness of sins which was found in the shed of my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Amen. Um, In just a moment, we'll just invite you to come down the center aisle. And there are two cups stacked on top of each other. The bread's on the bottom, juice is on the top. And then if you'll just grab one and go back to your seats. Um, And the gluten-free ones are in my office. Somebody wants to grab them. I totally forgot about that. Um, So if you need gluten-free, that'll be up here as well. Uh, I'm going to ask Carlos if he would come and, and help me out.